for the opportunity to meet together this morning and to praise you. Father, we just ask that you're present in this place this morning, uh, that you open our hearts this morning to your word, and that you just feed us, Lord, feed us in a way that we've never been fed before. Um, feed us with bread that, that will satisfy us this morning, Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Um, so, <clears throat> Chet told me when he, he asked if I would come and speak this morning, Chet told me that I could kind of choose whatever topic that I wanted to choose. Uh, so, we're, I think we're deviating a little bit from, um, from what we normally do. Uh, so, I did some research just in preparation for today. I did some research and looked at... Uh, what does the Bible say about specifically about the word Thanksgiving? Uh, and so we'll use a few verses uh, in First and Second Corinthians that highlight Thanksgiving as a jumping off point for our uh, discussion this morning. But I want to kind of have three themes as we work our way through some of the verses. I want to have three themes. The, the first theme that I want to talk about is the American reality versus the world's reality. Uh, and maybe highlight any discrepancies that there may be there. Um, the second theme is our shared Thanksgiving responsibility. And then the third um, theme is unified by the bread and the cup. Uh, and so we'll try to use some of the verses again from First and Second Corinthians uh, to bring these points home. Uh, in Second Corinthians 9, uh, uh, 9, 10 through 11, verses 10 and 11, you see... Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Um, I wanted to start there uh, with that verse. Um, And when I was thinking about Thanksgiving and, and thinking about growing up, uh, every time we got together as a family when I was young, we would go around the table, uh, and my mother and father would ask us, you know, everybody seated at the table, to go around the table and, and just list off the things that we were thankful for. And so in the spirit of that this morning, I just want us to take a minute and just kind of reflect on the things that, we, um, that we're thankful for. What is it in our lives that, that we're thankful for, that, that we take to God uh, when we think about uh, being thankful or, or thanksgiving, the things that, that are very precious to us or what we're most thankful for? <coughs> I also, as part of this, want us to think about what do we worry about? Um, I think that the cries and the worries of our heart reveal as much about our current mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual states as the joys of our hearts do. And so I ask us to kind of inspect our hearts and, and think about what, are we, what do we worry about? What occupies our, our worries? Um, 
when I was in physical therapy school, I went to uh, Portland, Oregon, and uh, I did a clinical rotation for six weeks in Portland, Oregon. And I was born and raised in the southeast, born and raised in Alabama, and then did all my schooling in Georgia, and then back in Alabama for graduate school and physical therapy school. Uh, and so it was really an awesome experience to get to go out to Portland, Oregon, and study um, physical therapy. And I lived at Oregon Health Sciences University in the dormitory there, and I was surrounded by international students. And the amazing thing about the international students that I was surrounded with is they knew so much more about the world than me and my fellow classmates did. They knew so much about our country, and they knew about all the, the countries of the world, and, uh, all the different countries of the world, and all the different world leaders. And they just had this very, um, this very worldly view of things that we didn't have. And so it, it, was, it was really apparent to me at the time that I had a pretty egocentric view of the world. And I would venture to guess that most Americans, if, if we think about what we're thankful for and then we think about what we worry about, I think that most Americans probably wouldn't say that we're concerned about the availability of clean drinking water or electricity or sufficient education for our children um, or food or a roof over our head. But I think, is, and, and the thing that I want us to examine this morning is, is that um, are we in touch with the reality of the world? Uh, are we in touch with are, are we in touch with the problems uh, and the cries of the hearts that God hears uh, in in the prayers of the worldwide community? Um, if I step outside of my American bubble, it becomes very apparent that there are many in our world community that would list things like food and water and electricity and education and those kind of things as being central obstacles in their daily struggle or survive. Um, I want to share two stories with you this morning. Both of these stories come from the book Counterculture. Uh, it's written by David Platt. But as I was studying and as, as, as I was researching for this morning, these, these stories kind of stuck out in my mind. Um, so the, the first story is about a man named Samir. And uh, Samir was a gentleman that uh, David Platt and some missionaries came across uh, when they were touring around Asia. And Samir lives in this remote village, uh, this remote village in Asia. And uh, Platt describes the gentleman, Samir, as wearing a tattered beige shirt and this brown jacket that was f uh, full of holes. Uh, he said it was very apparent that the man hadn't bathed in a couple of weeks. He just, he said he looked very dishe disheveled. Um, Platt describes that despite his unkept appearance, that wasn't the thing that really stood out to the missionaries. The big thing that stood out to the missionaries is that when they looked in Samir's eyes, you could see all the way through his skull, uh, into his skull. Uh, weeks before meeting Samir, uh, the mission, uh, weeks before meeting Samir, um, he had gotten a, an infection in his eye. Uh, the the infection would have been considered basic and very treatable in the U.S., but the lack of basic health care had caused the infection to spread. Uh, his eyeball had fallen out of its socket, and a gaping hole now stood on the right side of Samir's face. His right cheek was falling in, um, and his hearing was beginning to fail. Within days of the missionaries meeting Samir, uh, Samir's life would come to an end because of an eye infection. 
This story really hit home with me because we've recently had an eye mishap in our family as well. Um, we, during a vacation this summer, asked my parents to keep, uh, to keep watch over our rabbits. We've got two rabbits in the backyard, um, Snoozy and Alice. And uh, so they're in a hutch in the backyard, and so we asked my parents if they'd keep watch over the rabbits while we were gone. So my father, in taking care of the rabbits uh, on a Friday evening, forgot to lock the hutch back. And so two days later, when they returned on Sunday uh, to feed the rabbits, the door to the hutch was open and the, the rabbits were gone. And so my parents involved a lot of our neighbors, and they went on a, a hunt to try to find the rabbits all over our neighborhood. And a couple hours later, they ended up actually finding both the rabbits. So we find out about the story after the fact, and, you know, it's kind of no harm, no foul, that kind of thing. So we get home a few days later, and Porter goes out to check the rabbits, and Porter said there's something wrong with Alice's eye. And uh, so Beth went out and checked, and Alice had this huge crust over her, over her left eye. And um, so Beth, took, Beth and Porter took Alice to uh, the UGA vet hospital, and we found out that sometime during the time when she was out of the hutch, Alice had been attacked by, it, it appeared to be attacked by a hawk, and the hawk had clawed at her eye, and so she had gotten an infection in her eye. And they said if we hadn't done anything about it, eventually the infection would have spread to her brain. Um, but we gave her six weeks of antibiotics, and Alice, you know, we're proud to say as healthy as a horse. The difficult thing, though, in, in reflecting on the story of Alice and reflecting on the story of Samir is that a $15 rabbit in the United States receives better health care than Samir did in Asia. Um, that should cause us to press the pause button, and that should be a reality check for our family and for you know our church community. Um, the second story that I want to share um, is about Malia, but before I share that story, um, I think it's important that we realize how blessed we are. Um, economics professors Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert observe how the American standard of living typical today is extremely uncommon throughout the course of human history. They write, at no time in history has there ever been greater economic disparity in the world than there is at present. Speaking specifically about present-day Americans, and this is all Americans, they conclude, by any measure, we are the richest people to ever walk the planet. Um, that, that's, that's pretty strong, you know, and, and that should, that should cause us to have an awareness of the greater world community and the poverty that is, uh, out there in the greater world community. Uh, the second story again that I want to share with you is about, uh, Maliha, uh, I'm sorry, Mahila, I spelled the name wrong, Mahila, um, Mahila lives in Nepal. Uh, Nepal is uh, the region, region of Asia um, where the Himalayan mountains are. And so she lives up in the Himalayan mountains with her mother and her two siblings. Uh, she's nine years old. She's the same age as Porter. 
Um, and she does not go to school because, number one, there's no access to school in her village. And number two, she has to work to provide for her uh, two younger siblings. And so her and her mom are in charge of uh, going to work every day to provide for the younger siblings. Uh, one day, a young businessman encounters uh, Mahila on the, uh, in the village. And he's taken first off by her beauty, but also he, he notices that she's, she's very small. She's malnourished, and so she looks much younger than nine years old. And so the man approaches uh, Mahila's mother and tells her mother that uh, there's very good work for Mahila if she would travel with him to Kathmandu, which is the largest city in Nepal. And so he tells the mother that um, she could make three times the amount of money that she's making for doing the same type of jobs uh, in Kathmandu that she's currently making at the village where she works and, and lives. And so the mother is taken by the offer, but decides that parting with her eldest daughter would just, that's just too great of a sacrifice. And so even though the, the offer sounds amazing, um, she humbly denies the man's request. So weeks go by, and she has trouble getting this idea out of her head because they're struggling to survive. There's no food on the table. Her and Mahila both work day in and day out to provide for the family, but there's just not a lot of good jobs in the area. And so a couple of months later, uh, the young businessman returns, and this time he has a bag of money. Uh, he brings 10,000 rupees, which is the equivalent in U.S. Uh, to $100 U.S. And uh, this is about the equivalent of six months' wages in the village where Mahila is working. And so the man says that he's, uh, he's <coughs> bought, brought this money as a pledge to Mahila and her mother and her siblings uh, to show them that he wants to take care of them. He wants to take care of her. He wants to take care of the family. And this amount of money is just too much for the mother to say no to. And so through teary eyes, the mother brings Mahila in and asks Mahila um, to introduce herself to the gentleman. Uh, and she tells Mahila, this is what you have to do for our family. And I don't want you to do this, but this is what you have to do for our family. And Mahila, being the good daughter that she is, she reluctantly agrees and says that she'll go with the man. And so preparations are made, and the man says that in a few days he'll come back to the village and he will pick Mahila up. And he makes a pledge that every, uh, all the money that Mahila makes in Kathmandu will be sent back to the family. And also Mahila will be brought back to her village um, once a year for her to visit with her mother and with her siblings. Um, so uh, a few days later, the man returns, and Mahila and the man make the long trek down to Kathmandu. Uh, when they arrive in Kathmandu, uh, Mahila is fed, and she is given nice, new, pretty, uh, tight clothes to put on, uh, and she is drugged. And... Um, in the coming days, the young businessman repeatedly 
steals Mahila's innocence from her over and over again. And this goes on for a number of days, and then eventually um, Mahila is introduced to a life of prostitution at the age of nine years old. Um, she's sold into a life of prostitution for $100. Um, <clears throat> Mahila would never see her, parent, her mother again. She would never see her siblings again because if she could escape from the brothel where she was working, she had no clue how to get back home. She couldn't make that journey on her own. And then what would she tell her mother and what would she tell her siblings? Um, before her 10th birthday, she would be addicted to alcohol and drugs uh, and her life would never be the same. The important thing for us to realize about both of these stories is that the prevailing belief in the areas of Asia that Samir and Mahila resides has some basis in the errant theology of be good and be blessed and be bad and be cursed. And so Mahila and Samir both believe and they're taught by the, the religious cultures in this area um, that their situations are a repayment from their gods for some wrong they've done in a previous life. Um, their, their current situations are karma, nothing more and nothing less. Mahila, her captor, and the numerous men that she came in contact with during her days in Kathmandu do not need a God who de uh, demands deeds and atonement for sin. In the previous verses from Second Corinthians, uh, Corinthians, we read, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. I believe that as followers of Jesus, living in the most affluent society the world has ever known, that Paul is challenging us in these verses here. We've been enriched beyond measure, um, and, we are gen and, and we are to be generous so that God is glorified. Paul's encouragement was that our Thanksgiving would not end with a turkey, some dressing, and a football game. Paul's challenge was, was that we would use our enriched lives to enrich the lives of others so that God is glorified in our Thanksgiving. Um, moving on and discussing our shared Thanksgiving responsibility, I want us to look at 2 Corinthians 4, 13 through 15. We see it is written, <clears throat> I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. I think it's really important that we see Paul saying, since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe, and because we believe, we also speak. So we believe and then we speak of our belief. The only way that others will be blessed through us is if we speak of our belief. Both Samir and Mahila need the good shepherd who goes in search of the one lost sheep and is willing to risk everything, even his own life, to save me, to save you, um, to save and redeem Samir, Mahila, her captors, and the men who defiled her existence. They need Jesus. In order for them to know Jesus, 
we have to speak as followers of Jesus. In truth, when they were asked, neither Samir nor Mahila had ever heard of Jesus before coming in contact with uh, Platt's missionary team. And this may be the biggest tragedy in both of their stories, is that had Platt's team not been there, they would have never known about Jesus. Um, they may have died without realizing that their, the pervasive religious culture that uh, taught them that suffering in this life was punishment for deeds, uh, deeds done in a previous life was a lie. That the belief that being reincarnated into a life of suffering was God's punishment for the evil they had done to others in the past was a deceit-filled message from gods that never existed to begin with. They would never have known that there is redemption, there is freedom, and there is salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. The truth about their stories is that their stories are both economic and spiritual. There's an economic flaw here, and there's a spiritual flaw, and we have to address both. Our government wants to aid and protect these people purely by financial means. But the gospel compels us to assist not only financially, but also through our witness. We have to speak to the needs of these people. The grace that we receive should flow through us to reach more and more people and cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. So now I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. This morning I encourage us when we take the bread and when we take the cup to realize that we are taking part in the greatest Thanksgiving feast the world has ever known. Communion symbolizes that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let's think about that, though. We are, we are worshiping in communion. We are worshiping in all three tenses. Christ has died in the past tense. Christ is risen in the present tense. And Christ will come again in the future tense. Communion challenges us to worship in all three tenses, looking to our past, examining our present, and promising a future of hope, a hope that stands in Christ alone. Communion asks us to examine not only our past, our present, and our future, but we've got to examine the world's past, the world's present, and what is the future of the world. What good is this feast if I celebrate it but I don't share it with others. I encourage us this morning to stand firm in the knowledge that Jesus has paid it all in full. I ask us to stand firm in the truth that the only way to fully heal the wounds of Mahila and Samir and the millions of others who share their story um, and who this depth of poverty is their reality um, we must share our wealth and we must share our Savior with them. We must share Jesus with these people. We are the richest civilization to ever walk the face of the earth and are compelled through the gospel to share our blessing with others so that thanksgiving may overflow to the glory of God. Let's pray.
Dear Jesus, thank you so much for for Thanksgiving. Thank you um, for all the abundance that we see around us, Father. Father, please allow us to use our gifts to serve others. Father, please allow us to never be ashamed of sharing the gospel with others. Never be ashamed of proclaiming the name of Jesus, no matter what the cost, Father. In your precious name.